0: InVivo Qualitative Data Analysis Software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo Podcast Between the Data. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Stacey Penna, the Engagement and Enablement Director at Lumavero. Today's podcast is with Dr. Michael Schmidt, Associate Professor at the University of Memphis. We will be discussing his research based on his dissertation, Exploring Help-Seeking Behavior Among Minority Women Survivors of Intimate Partner Violence, or IPV, in the Mid-South of the United States. So welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me, Dr. Penna.
0: So my first question is, how did you decide on this topic for your dissertation?
1: Well, my dissertation topic grew out of prior work. I was doing designing information-based interventions for child and family well-being. And then sometime during my PhD studies in social and behavioral sciences, that evolved into an interest in domestic violence, specifically intimate partner violence, or IPV, which, of course, impacts well-being of the whole family.
0: And what research method did you use?
1: I conducted a qualitative study.
0: And did you use a specific method within qualitative research?
1: Well, I, I uh, used grounded theory methodology to analyze the data, but for the data collection, I used a semi-structured interview guide to facilitate 30 in-depth interviews. Wow.
0: And how did you collect? So I know you just talked about interviews, but maybe talk more like how you found people to interview, um... And the process of finding people and then also, you know, collecting that data.
1: So, right. I had this idea um, for a dissertation, but honestly, I mean, being a, a white man who wanted to study intimate partner violence among minority women, and as my participants identified themselves, Black and Hispanic... I had to investigate whether or not I was even the right researcher for the project. So first thing I did is I went to the largest domestic violence agency in our region. I spoke to their head counselor, and I just shared with her what I was thinking about doing for my dissertation. And her response was unexpected. She said that from her perspective, her clients would likely benefit from a man who wanted to hear their stories, a man who's a, a scientist, a professor who's there to treat them as the subject matter experts, to learn from them, to listen rather than to speak, could be refreshing and empowering. And, and it was kind of the answer I wanted to hear, but it also felt a little too easy. So I began at her invitation. I think she could see that I, I felt it might be a little kind of giving me the easy way out that she uh, then invited me to, to volunteer with the organization. So every Monday night, I was working with the Children's Trauma Recovery Group at this, at that agency, and I began to feel a little more confident that this could work out. And so after a year of working there, I proposed my study to the IRB. And so it was primarily, my participants were primarily women from that agency. I did have to expand to an additional four sites, of other you know agencies in the region in order to to reach my thirty participants, and the uh, the counselors are very helpful too with recruiting participants. So I wanted to make sure that my participants were for prospective participants were comfortable saying no to the recruiter. I also had uh, colleagues that I you know could match my participants on sex and race and ethnicity. So the participants had a choice. I think they just, you know, after a year, become familiar enough, seeing me around that, they were fine with me being their their interviewer. And then the other agencies, it seemed also not to be a barrier. So that, that, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I know that's not always easy, especially being a a student. (laughs) Right. To, to find participants, um, and so that sounds like a great way of uh, going about it. And how how long did it take you to go through that process?
1: So, data collection took a year. It was, mm-hmm. There were you know 30 interviews, so there were a lot of logistical challenges that had to be addressed. I mean, first there was getting through the IRB, which should be rigorous, particularly when you're working with a protected population. So the study protocol itself was rigorous. They didn't seem to have too many questions about that. They really wanted to make sure, however, that I also had a rigorous safety protocol riding along with that study protocol. And I think that year of being involved in that agency helped promote some confidence there. And then many of the logistical challenges, as you can imagine, with women surviving IPV I had to do with the complexities of their living in, uh, environment, work, uh, child care, transportation, and then the safety protocol. Having you know a security guard there, having a counselor there in case women experienced um, emotional distress, and they could speak to their counselor. Having background check child care providers for the Spanish language interviews. Half my interviews were with uh, people who spoke Spanish as their first language. I had to work with medical translators. And fortunately, you know, we have the wonderful St. Jude Children's Research Hospital here in Memphis. So I had two medical translators from St. Jude who helped me conduct those interviews, as well as quality assure the transcripts. So it was a lot of people to coordinate, to get into one place at one time. And I had to do that 30 times. Mm-hmm. So that that's why it, it, it took a year to collect the data.
0: I mean, honestly, that that seems pretty quick for all that <laughs> to me. I mean, that's, I know, long, but that's a lot. You're, like you said, to organize, to do all that for 30 interviews.
1: I had wonderful partners, the different agencies I was working with here in Memphis. I couldn't have done it without them. They were wonderful when it came to helping coordinate recruiting. Otherwise, it would have been impossible.
0: So how did you analyze your data once you once you had it all collected?
1: Right. So I, I analyzed the data in in vivo uh, following a grounded theory methodology. So that involves, of course, stages. I was following Charmaz's three stage model of initial coding, focus coding, and theoretical coding. And I needed to have a lot of flexibility, particularly early on. So I had thousands of pages. Of transcripts, and you can imagine initial coding through that data, because we were looking at the phenomenon of help seeking from a variety of angles. You know, the information, motivation, behavioral skills, so we were community norm, and influences of community and family on help seeking. So it was a massive data set. So that initial coding, I had a, a just an insane number of codes. Unfortunately, as as I continued to abstract from the data, that became a lot more cohesive over time.
0: Did you start coding right away, or did you wait till you had a few interviews? Or you know, how was that process
1: um, that you did? So the coding process was iterative, meaning I would do an interview, get the transcript, code the data. I would go back, do an interview, get the transcript, code the data, which is. Uh, really an advantageous way to understand if you're reaching saturation on certain uh, codes and categories. It's also a good way to identify where you may need to probe for further information. And then you, it's kind of fascinating, really, you find yourself in an interview doing things you didn't quite realize your brain could do <laughs> while you're Listening to somebody and getting their story and recognizing and identifying data that you're missing or things that you need to ask them more about, because you're just like you're—you have a mental picture of your data set in your mind. At the same time, you're you're listening to the person, and you've got to be, of course, very conscientious to focus on that person above all else. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: definitely. And did memos help with your analysis? Did you use memos at all?
1: Uh, Extensive memoing. So. I, when it came to trying to ensure rigor, I, 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 I my joke was I, I left no qualitative methods book unturned. <laughs> uh, I, I really threw everything at it. And I, I particularly like because I, I, I think they're, they're vital criteria, Lincoln and Guba's criteria for trustworthiness. So with credibility, one of their four criteria, memoing is an important part. So I. You're trying to create an audit trail so another researcher could follow along what you did. It goes towards, you know, reproducibility in, in addition to credibility. And then I had used memos to document all of my coding decisions. So how did I get there? How did I wind up with that? Memos were also important for me to bracket, to consider my own biases. How might I be interpreting the data? And they were really useful too as I began to see patterns emerge so I could memo about what I was seeing happen in the data as I was looking at the codes and I was was seeing things arise through that inductive grounded theory methodology.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you for sharing. This podcast is sponsored by LumaVero, developers of InVivo and other software designed by and for data experts to illuminate powerful new insights that help customers make decisions with confidence. If you're looking for a better way to analyze and manage qualitative data, try using NVivo with the 14-day trial. And so, you answered part of this, but how did you ensure rigor when analyzing your data? So, you used memos was there anything else?
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, so credibility can be assured in a variety of ways or many techniques. So, one technique is prolonged engagement. So I mentioned I had volunteered at the agency for a year. Of course, I continued to volunteer there while collecting data. So that was a second year. And then I uh, continued on for a third year volunteering there. So prolonged engagement is, is one way. Also mitigating social desirability bias is important to ensuring credibility. And some specific ways to do that is to make sure during recruiting and certainly during the informed consent process that the participants know that participation is voluntary, that they're assured of confidentiality. And as I mentioned earlier, I gave my participants the choice of interviewers. So they would, the person would be someone they were comfortable sharing their experiences with. Because after all, we were also talking about experiences of sexual violence. So all of that, and there's a lot of stigma in, in the community around IPV itself, really regardless of type of IPV. And and it was important, you know, as I mentioned too earlier, to make sure the participants knew that they were under no obligation. And I mentioned I bracketed certainly the memos were important and, and the quality assurance was critical, particularly with the Spanish to English transcriptions. So again, I I brought the expertise of the medical translators back and they back checked the transcriptions against the audio recording for accuracy. And then during coding, As I mentioned, I was using the constant comparative method. So you're comparing data to data, data to codes, codes to categories, and categories to categories. You're constantly interrogating the data. And as part of that, you're looking for disconfirming cases. So instead of trying to fit everything neatly into either a preconceived idea or fitting neatly into something that you think is emerging, you're still looking for things that contradict your inferences and documenting that.
0: And you mentioned you use NVivo. So how did InVivo assist you with your analysis?
1: So In vivo provided this a really flexible way to create codes and move data around, merge codes, create categories, change category names. In other words, it just allowed me the flexibility. To organize the data, but then also to manipulate it any way I needed to as I continued to move from my line-by-line line or initial coding all the way up to my you know, substantive theoretical coding. So I appreciated that flexibility. And then it was also a great way to organize my participant characteristics. So usually you'll see like in a qualitative paper, table one will be your participant characteristics. So I was able to record all of that in vivo and it was also you know just a a really convenient way to make sure as i was drafting my manuscripts later that the items that i had coded were not separated from their source so when you're in vivo and you're looking at data that you've coded there's a header right above that coded data that tells you where it came from so it's almost impossible to, to break those things apart So. That was uh, important for me, and then there are some smaller tools too that I found useful, like the coding stripes. You know, so having that over on the right-hand side, the way I like to arrange it, is was helpful because during initial coding, I was double coding, even triple coding some things. And I know there are probably some qualitative researchers out there listening who think, "Oh my goodness, you know, I never do that." But I didn't want to lose any nuance. I wasn't exactly sure which. Where that data was finally going to end up, so it that was helpful for me to see that over there. And then even though I was not using a method that involved counts, it was still helpful to see a number of coded items next to the title of the code because it would draw my attention and it would make me remind me to think about, saturation and uh, remind me to think about merging codes it wouldn't give me the answers but it would provoke me to to take another look at that category i could see where things were thin and i could see where things might be getting just too complex or top heavy as well
0: yeah where you might have to break that up right into more codes or categories that's what i found i like the way you can actually code on a code in vivo right so you can open it up and then see right. all that and be able to then break up that code, if it makes sense. But um, so, so I'm always curious, like, how did you learn how to use InVivo?
1: I watched the tutorials on the uh, QSR. I know you all heard changing your name. So, but that was at the time <laughs> when oh, I yeah. was doing my data coding, those tutorials online were really helpful. So just following along with the videos mm-hmm. and then just playing around. I mean, I think the, the application is pretty intuitive, once you know what the you know the basic functions are you can, you can just kind of find some other things out by playing with it mm-hmm. but the videos were helpful as an introduction and they you know start off as kind of a general intro and and then you can get you can drill down into how the specific tools operate so I found all of that really approachable and and was able to get up and running with it really fast so that yeah that's how that's I good. how I figured yeah. it out yeah.
0: yeah oh that's good thank you We'll take a quick break from the episode. To learn more about Dr. Schmidt's research, visit his webpage at the University of Memphis. So what were your key findings based on your analysis?
1: Right. So our findings revealed ways our participants uh, resisted the constantly shifting manipulation tactics of their perpetrators. Also, the the often independent actions that participants took to access and remain engaged in services, like making escape plans and locating information about available services. As many of our participants did not have a great deal of community support, family support. Most participants only had maybe one person in their life they felt they could really trust. We also learned about the kinds of information media that participants preferred and and their ideas for how to disseminate information in the community, as well as the similarities and differences between participant groups on those preferences. And then also it was interesting, the community and, and interpersonal resistance that had made it so challenging to discuss IPV, let alone pursue help for IPV, is something that many of our participants discussed. So there were a number of insights that the participants had to share, and they were really excited about sharing what they had learned with other women in similar circumstances, so they wouldn't be left without information about what domestic violence is, where to go to find help, that in fact, they do deserve help, that some of the fears they might have regarding how they would be treated, how they would be viewed, could actually be something they could ameliorate. Uh, having that firsthand experience. And in fact, one of my participants was really excited. She was starting her own nonprofit organization to do exactly these things. Uh, another participant was super excited about working with her employer's HR department to create a domestic violence awareness day. And there was a lot of passion on the part of, the, of these participants to, to share what they had learned and, and to effect change.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So it sounded like, and I've heard this quite a few times interviewing researchers. Like a lot of times the research helps the participants go out and do work um in their community, right? To to help others.
1: I think I couldn't really take credit for that. These were things that they had underway uh, before meeting me. I I think that I, I did have participants who felt that the interview itself
0: mm-hmm.
1: was meaningful to have someone listening and who really wanted to share what they were doing. So they they were excited to have to have that involvement from a researcher who 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 was also interested in trying to to get information out. Uh, so that so they they found purpose in, in the interview in, in that manner and in the research in that way. That's mm-hmm. yeah.
0: great. Thank, thank you. So how do you think your dissertation has like added to the field of study or added to helping women who are facing intimate partner violence?
1: Right. I hope it will do is encourage more studies of facilitators to help seeking. The, the literature right now is really lopsided on barriers, all the things that get in the way of finding help. And I specifically or purposefully sampled participants who were receiving services because I wanted to know also what worked how did they get where they where they were and I I think we we certainly need more studies of that sort you know what works to to gain access to treatment what works to remain in uh, when I say treatment I should really say trauma recovery and prevention counseling so what does it what does it take and so that that's what I hope you know a study like this will prompt some further work in that direction.
0: And so are are you doing any of that work yourself? Do you have any upcoming publications that you're working on?
1: We have a a revise and resubmit pending with a top journal. So I'm guardedly optimistic, crossing my fingers here that that will get published soon. And then we have three other manuscripts uh, in production right now.
0: Oh, that's great. And when you say we, do you have a team working with you?
1: I do so. My thesis or my dissertation chair, Dr. Satish Kadia, has been instrumental throughout my studies, and of course through my dissertation. And now, um, as a as a colleague, working um, with me in, on this initiative, and and I'm also working with his and on and his initiative, working with him and his initiatives. And then we have other team members, Dr. Patrick Dillon. Kent State uh, and uh, Dr. Katie Howell. She's also uh, here at the University of Memphis, uh, who are participating in this work, and their insights have been invaluable. It's 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 not the kind of thing whether it's a dissertation or writing a manuscript that is is typically independent. You know, it, it really takes a team, and uh, I've been fortunate enough to have excellent mentors, uh, excellent colleagues who are excited about the work and and have really learned a great deal of expertise.
0: Great, Thank you. So my last question is, what's one piece of advice you would give um, dissertation students conducting qualitative research?
1: This might seem a little esoteric, but I would say really think as much about the informed consent process as you do about the interview itself. I think there may be a tendency to say, well, you know, informed consent, you know, it's just this requirement I have to go through. But it can really be uh, valuable in, in addition to ensuring your, that you're meeting your bioethical obligations. It can really be a valuable time to get oriented, you know, with your uh, participant to really cede authority to the participant to make sure that that they really understand and feel that that they're in charge um, that they can leave at any time. And, and I think that really helps build some initial rapport that can help uh, lead to an interview that will yield rich data. So I definitely would say you know, plan to make the most out of that informed consent process and, and don't regard it as uh, some bureaucratic thing you have to do for the IRB. It's, it's, it really should be a meaningful interaction between you and the participant.
0: Very good advice. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for talking with us. And thanks to those tuning in. Listeners, if you learn more about how minority women survivors of intimate partner violence explore help-seeking behaviors from listening to this episode, we'd really appreciate your support by rating and subscribing to the In podcast. This helps us to share these amazing narratives with the
1: research community. So thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about Envivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.nvivo by slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at s.penna P-E-N-N-A at Qsr